0: Take your Bible, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. And we continue our journey through this book, and certainly now some of the happier chapters than we spent in the earlier portions of the book. All right, God's Word, Isaiah, chapter 44. But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I'm the Lord. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's," And name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Uh, Fear not, nor be afraid. Am I not told you from of old and declared it? You're my witnesses. And there is a God, sorry, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. They are witnesses, neither seen or know, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes. Uh, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it and warms himself. Kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god, and worships it. He makes an idol. And falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol. Falls down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you're my God. And they know not, nor do they discern for he shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals, roasted meat, and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, and a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you're my servant. I formed you. You're my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing. O heavens, for the Lord has done it! shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish? Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, and They shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, show mercy. Speak to your people. Uh, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight. And We ask for Christ's sake, amen. Remember reading a book maybe uh, well, 15 years ago, I think now, 16? Right as I was coming into pastor here, uh, I was coming out of my youth ministry days and one of those. Uh duties I needed to do as a youth pastor was kind of keep tabs on the cultural movements and uh, societal developments in the lives of students and high schoolers and middle schoolers. And uh, such fickle creatures as they are, they do tend to change more rapidly than their parents, uh, but the changes they tend to endure in their middle school and high school years uh, tend to be reflected in them in their older years. And so it was one of those great experiences of learning how teenagers worked. You could figure out how adults worked themselves uh, and probably would work into the future. One of those books as I was reading as coming into pastor here was uh, beginning to describe in in some sense prophetically what the relationship between mankind and technology uh, would do and kind of become uh, in our lives into the coming years. And uh, obviously the author was uh, fairly negative toward it, fairly grim, and looking at the developments in technology, and that was long before we've Uh, even had any concept that chat GPT would become a thing or uh, AI would become a thing the way that it is and uh, all of the scary and awful things that are happening in our world today. But interestingly, the point that he made was that uh, one of the unexpected negatives of the arrival of technology the way that it is is that I am implicitly taught To care about things that are not my business. And it's a really interesting thing. He said, even you you look at it, and even the news, we are implicitly taught in the news constantly to care about things that are not my business. And as a result, there's this kind of constant influx of new information that lasts for a moment vanishes from the news cycle overnight, and is replaced by new terrible news the next morning. And if you followed this week at all, right, we had uh, one of the great cities in our nation received eight inches of rain in a 24-hour span and flooded in the most spectacular fashion with all kinds of videos, and it was really shocking, and then it basically was gone the next morning. Now, I know the water's not gone, I know that if I had friends living in New York City, it's probably still insane to live there, but it's gone from my memory and from my mind. Or perhaps you, you followed that there was a uh, suicide bomber in Pakistan that blew up a religious festival killed 50 people. That was on the headline news in the Charlotte News Cycle for uh, a roughly about an eight-hour span and then gone. And uh, prophetically, this book was saying that I was reading almost a decade ago. That one of the byproducts of that would be that we would end up having so much information kind of coming into our lives, and so much information that I'm kind of forced to feel is important, that eventually it will all become white noise, and we'll just stop listening. We'll just stop listening. It's too much. The human mind and the human heart can't care about so many things so quickly, so constantly that will just turn off. And Twenty years ago, 15 years ago, this being written, now we're beginning to see this uh, as a, a, a new and horrible thing where you're looking at your younger people in the room. Parents, you probably do not understand this. That if uh, your friends that you care about are in their uh, roughly 38 to 45 range, They probably get their primary news off of a source like Twitter, and if your beloved is anywhere from 25 to 17, their primary news source is either Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, or some other abomination. We're we're so overwhelmed with the, the constant inflow of news that it's just become white noise and we've functionally stopped listening. We just don't care anymore. Unless it's a funny meme that's going to make me laugh, my heart can't bother to have enough emotional energy to care about these things. And and one of the byproducts, again, prophetically, that was being written about 20 years ago, is that this sense of kind of constantly drowning in information would produce a society that has nothing stable to stand on. Basically, the information would be uh, like a, a, a hurricane of data that would be so overwhelming and so oppressive and so confusing and so constant that eventually people would be just like, I can't find anything strong or stable to stand on. I'm just going to throw up my hands and I'm just going to stop paying attention. I mean, think about it. How many of you stopped paying attention during the last presidential election? You like, I just can't handle it anymore. I cannot handle it anymore. Interestingly, how many of you has that carried through already now into this next presidential election? I can't be bothered with the crazy or stupid or whatever it is. And it's it's producing a society in America that is unstable, that is built on shifting sands, that has nothing that feels truly true. So that we're constantly trying to perhaps kind of chase the truth. And this is where uh, perhaps corrupt uh, media, perhaps, I'm I'm not going to say definitively, but where that further compounds it so that now you have these competing news sources. Our major news stations, which are owned by American corporations, our social media, which is owned by Chinese corporations, our internet sources that are owned by the same. So that we have no way of knowing what's ultimately and truly true. How do we live in a world of chaos and know what's truly true? I think Isaiah chapter 44 is a good answer to that. Again, we're in the latter part of the book, and really that idea of a a chaotic world is the backdrop for the latter part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. God has been speaking definitively to his people in saying, look, you have sinned against me and there are going to be consequences nationally. Your nation is going to be broken apart. It's going to be invaded. It's going to be destroyed. Uh, You're going to suffer terribly for it. Starvation and misery, death and destruction, you are going to be looking at a world and saying, what is going on? And now, in the latter chapters, how are we to think and feel and live and act in a world that is marked by such chaos? Well, verses 1 through 5 introduce an important theme. It's largely the theme of the latter, book of, of the latter portion of the book of Isaiah. It's constant through it all, really. Put in slightly New Testament terminology, The starting point of the Christian experience is and must be the promises of God. The starting point of the Christian experience is and must be the promises of God. Now, chapter 43 was the previous chapter, a happy chapter. It was the Lord prophesying his his Savior that he was going to provide the, the servant of God, the anointed of God, the Messiah who would come in and redeem for himself a people. It was a happy chapter, but it ended with really bad news. Verses even kind of 26, 27, 28, look at it there in the previous chapter. Uh, Put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. This is courtroom language. So even after the Redeemer is promised, courtroom language is brought up in verse 26 and what is the courtroom language in verse 27 and 28? Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. So your lineage is a lineage of sin. Even the Redeemer is here, there's still sin and there's still disobedience and there's still evil that has to be resolved. And the problem is, is it's not the sin and disobedience and evil of out there that has to be dealt with. It's the sin and evil and disobedience of in here that has to be dealt with. That's one of the great mistakes the church has made through human history. It's one of the great mistakes that the devil I know has encouraged, is for us to be preoccupied with the sin out there and not the sin in here. right, it's the Effects of the public news cycle for us to be preoccupied with what's happening in Iraq and Iran, to be preoccupied with what's happening in China, to be preoccupied with what's happening in England and in France or in Mexico or Venezuela or New York City or Washington, D.C. or Columbia or even Charlotte, and not to be preoccupied with what is sinfully happening here. My heart Your first fathers sinned. Your mediators ever since have transgressed against me. You people of Israel are the problem. It's not the nations. It's not the Gentiles ultimately. It's you. And as a result, verse 28, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction, to Israel to reviling. Bad is going to happen. The wages of sin... Or death is death. It's not just kind of eternally, but sin has consequences here. It defines so much of our lives and the destruction that we live in. And that's the backdrop this chaos, this, this world of, uh, of tumultuous information and struggles and hurts and heartaches. How do we feel about that? Well, uh, chapter 44 continues on that, and you get the transition right there, even calls to it. But now, this is a continuation of the previous section, but now, even in light of that difficulty, even in light of those hurts and heartaches, even in light of those consequences of sin, even in light of the evil itself, people of God, listen. Listen. Hear what your God has to say. You are his people. Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. You belong to him. He's promised to you that you are his and he is yours. And even beyond that, he explains what that means. He is the Lord who's speaking, the one who has made you from before you were even known. When you only existed in his very mind, he was the one who knew you. And don't be afraid. Jacob, my people, don't be afraid the righteous one whom I have chosen. There's your nickname, Jeshurun, the righteous ones. Why? Why are we able to be stable and strong people in a land of shifting sands and swirling winds? Why? Well, three, four, and five. The sweet promises of God. I the Lord, will pour water on the thirsty land. Streams on dry ground. I, I, I'm not a farmer. We could ask Brandon if uh, you're here to be able to give a commentary on this. I could call him this week on his tractor, which I'll certainly be doing. And get him to comment on really kind of uh, what this feels like for the farmer to have in a dry and thirsty land, to have water be poured out. This is uh, kind of maybe for your suburban illustration. The Lord saying, I will add zeros to your bank account. I, I wouldn't be angry. Open my bank account and there's an extra zero on everything. That would be a really good day, wouldn't it? If there were two zeros, it would be extremely complicating because those would be numbers that I don't know how to count. And what do I do with that? And how do I save that and not get ripped off? The idea here, the Lord is going to bless his people. Now, it's a simplification and a reduction that's probably not helpful to just think money. What's being referred to here is the fullness of blessing. A blessing of spirit, a blessing of soul, uh, a blessing of joy and gentleness, of holiness and obedience and peace and tenderness and modesty and chastity and goodness and greatness and godliness. I will bless my people. In fact, actually, I will even keep my covenant promises to you and that I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon you in such a way that it even, he he even blesses uh, down the, family tree so that the blessings of God are extended not just to you but to your children and your children's children and your children's, children's children, children uh, so that you will be able to look down the family trees of the people of God and by and large see example after example of after example of people rising up and calling the Lord blessed These, his proof of kindness and care and compassion will spring up like plants growing in the midst of healthy places. And these children will even call out to one another, verse 5, saying, I belong to the Lord. Now, this is not simply, again, a, a promise of continuity through the generations, though it is that. It's not simply that. When you uh, are invaded by a foreign nation, it would be extremely important to think about the fact of, are there going to be any people left? If a foreign nation came in and invaded and took over the land, we would have to ask that question. Is there, will there be any of us left? Will will my, I have children. Will my children have children? Will there be any grandchildren? Will we be wiped off the face of the map? These promises in 3, 4, and 5 are not just that the Lord will care for their children going forward, but it's the idea that the Lord will raise up for himself a people, a people that he is responsible to protect, a people that he is responsible to provide for, and a people that will continue into perpetuity, that will always be there. He will raise up his church, and the church will always be victorious. I think it's intriguing that here in the midst of a a time that was marked for chaos, a time that was marked by instability, a time that was marked by turbulence and transition, the starting point, at least in this chapter, is the Lord saying, don't be afraid, my promises are true. Don't be afraid. My promises are true. And we're looking really uh, at a a culture that's gone the other way. We've we've tried to, over the last 25 years as a nation, really uh, process the, the tumultuous nature of our times by increasing information and perhaps increasing education, certainly increasing entertainment. And what we've watched is we've overloaded our our children and our teenagers and our 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and such overloaded with information and entertainments. What we've watched is rather than producing stability and strength, it's broken the spirit of an entire people. Where now, rather than fears being calmed, fears multiply. Rather than stability being increased, instability increases Rather than hope and joy increasing, chaos increases. I was reading just this week even uh, an assessment of the uh, plummeting birth rate in America. Uh, If you don't know this, we're not having babies at the rate that we need to as a nation. Uh, We need to have a lot more babies as a nation. Uh, But one of the assessments was, well, it's because people are being so selfish they don't want to have children. And that is probably the number two reason why our nation's not having enough babies. Um, the interesting thing is that they actually started digging into the data. And right now, at least as we can tell amongst our, our 20-year-olds as a nation, the reason why we don't have enough babies is because boys and girls don't ever actually talk to each other. And if you don't talk to each other, you don't really have the opportunity to ever really kind of fall in love. And you don't have the opportunity to get married, and you don't really have the opportunity to make babies. And it's really this kind of intriguing thing that's been traced back that, like, as we've given introduction with social media to so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people, the unexpected byproduct is that boys and girls never talk anymore. It's shocking. The stats of uh, young men that never actually spend in in any given year period never have any sort of conversation with a young woman in a social context. And then when it does happen, boy, it's terrifying, isn't it? Haven't learned through the school of hard knocks, uh, aren't old enough to remember having to call a girl's house and hope that her father didn't answer the only landline into the house because ooh, that was scary. We're watching a nation that, rather than growing in stability and peace, is actually growing in fragility. It's growing in chaos. We're watching a tr- culture really that's dying. the answer here is not to trust in man, but to trust in the God who has promised. And this is the same theme that's taken up in in the New Testament. How do I know that I will go to heaven? And everybody that joins this church is asked those questions, aren't you? You remember this. If you die tonight, will you go to heaven? Everybody answers yes. That was the easy one. Not everybody, most people. And the hard question is, is when you get there, why should you be allowed in? That's the really important question. That's the diagnostic question. You have really kind of lots of kind of snarky answers to it, but and there is some sense in which if you use the word I, you've made a mistake. And the answer is because you promised. You promised. God promised that if we call on His name, He forgives sins. You see, we're we're building a culture currently in a cultural moment. We're we're building in a time where our answers are in some way connected to the I of me or to the we of my group and not to an appeal to the one who is outside. My only hope in life and in death is that i am not my own but belong to my beloved lord both in body and in soul the starting point of the christian experience is and must be the promises of god well why would those promises be worth anything why would i listen to uh, why would i listen to the god of the bible I listen to the news, every one of them lie to me. I listen to my government, they actually have now started telling me they've been lying to me. I listen to my politicians, and I know they're lying to me. I listen to my friends, and they lie to me, though they don't like to admit that that happens. I listen to my neighbors, and they constantly lie. I listen, and everyone lies to me. Why would God be any different? Why would he be any different? Why would I I trust his promises? Some of you are even saying, I can't even trust the promises of my spouse. Why would I trust the promises of my God? Well, verses 6 through 8 then immediately turn to that. This is what the Lord says. The King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. I am the first and I am the last. I am the one from outside of time and outside of space. You see, the problem is all of your answers are with created things. They're all of the things that exist within time and space. They're all of the things that didn't exist but were made. They're creatures. They're created. They're part of the created material plane. God says, I am the God who is not of that world. I am not the God of that plane. I am the one who existed prior to time and after time at the exact same time because I am outside of time. And your little pea brains can't handle that reality and you're already confused, aren't you? Besides me, there is no God. There is only one who exists outside of time and space who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let them say who is great. Is there anyone great like our God? Let him declare and set it before me. You say it. And then I, I love verse 8. This one's so sweet. You could see how a big God like that could potentially be unbearably scary. The one from outside time, the one who is other, the one who is different. And what does he say in verse 8? You, my people, don't be afraid. I've told it to you from the very beginning. I'm your God. You're my people. And in fact, you're my witnesses. I've been telling you that all along. Why? Is there a God like me? No, there's not. There is no rock. Like our God, I know not any. There's no rock like our God. He is the true truth, the one who is stable and fixed, the one who is real and right. Perhaps you've been whitewater rafting and had that moment of experience where just before you come to the rapids or right as you enter into them, some missteering on your part or perhaps some mischief on the part of your people in your boat, and you go out the back or the side. And you have that kind of great and wonderful moment of riding through the rapids outside the raft. The last time I handled the Nantahala, I was riding with a bunch of students, and uh, I think it was partially incompetence but mostly mischief. Right before heading to the big rapids on the Nantahala, we rammed at full speed. The rock just in front of it bounced hard enough that I got flung out the back. And had that just wonderful kind of realization of like, I'm getting ready to go down the one gigantic rapid on the Nantahala with no boat. And I'm not really super keen on this. And I remember distinctly because you go over, kind of go over the falls and think, oh, well, here we go, and hit the hydraulic, which there is. And I remember going down, coming up head first, coming up feet first, coming up head first, and then coming up 55 feet down the river. My boat was still in the rapids when I came out 55 feet down the river. I don't know how I got spit out so fast. And floating through all of the chaos and all of the swirling water and all of the tumultuous white foam to be able to find one rock to stand on. I didn't know where I was, I didn't know which way was up, I didn't know which way was out. All I knew was that I needed help, and I didn't have a boat, so I needed a rock. I love that the Lord describes himself in that similar language. Well, you you exist in a world of chaos. You live your daily life and you feel, some of you, like that's what you're doing. Your head pops up, then your feet pop up, then your head pop up, and you're like, what is happening this week and it's only Tuesday? You need a rock. One who's able to be stood upon and relied upon. One who is true truth, who cannot be altered, a fixed point that everything can be pinned to. that cannot and will not move. From there, he then turns to really, if you don't choose the Lord to be that fixed point in time and space, if you don't choose the Lord to be that true truth, you're really only left with one other choice. Every, every human has to build their life around true truth in some fashion. And if you don't have the real true truth, if you, if you don't have the rock of God, your only option then is to take the created order and elevate it. If you don't have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, if you, if you don't have the Triune God, if you don't have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you do not have the Lord Christ as your fixed point. Your true truth, the only thing left, is the created order. And we have all sorts of kind of various machinations of that, but it is still, at the end of the day, the created order that we then trust. Whether it be trusting ourselves, that's our primary God here in America, or trusting in our spouse, or trusting in our identity as children, or trusting in our identity as um, good citizens, Not really that much anymore, I guess. Trusting in our identity as our entertainments, as our various political groups, as our online personas, trusting in the created order in some fashion. And at the end of the day, your ESV has a very helpful and handy title, The Folly of Idolatry. Idolatry doesn't pay. The starting point of the Christian experience of the promises of God and only an eternal rock is worth building on. Idolatry doesn't pay. And that's what is then worked out. Verse 9 all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. I mean, they might feel good for a time, but they don't last. <clears throat> and one of the dangers, and uh, in, in the Christian church, really, one of the dangers is that when we speak of idolatry, we reduce it to a caricature. Right? A caricature is a, a, kind of a, a straw man. It's a false illustration that uh, is easily handled and is safely defeated. When we deal with idolatry, we like to reduce it and to present it only in the language that God uses here and that we'll see in like Hinduism or something like that, where there's actually like Buddhism, a stone Buddha that you offer uh, gifts and offerings to. If you ever go into a Hindu temple, which I don't recommend that you do, that's what you'll see. They'll have very statues or paintings or drawings and people will be offering milk, or flowers or various uh, incenses or things like that before the statues and the, and the paintings and things like that. And you're going, okay, well, that's easily and obviously ridiculous. What is that statue gonna do? What is Buddha gonna do? He's dead. It's easy. And that's actually one of the great challenges in the church is that we ridicule that and we actually, again, forget what's the problem? Problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And we forget really the idolatry of, uh, of self, the idolatry of pleasure, the idolatry of safety and of peace, the idolatry of the avoidance of pain, the idolatry of really elevating created things to higher standards than they deserve. And the Lord here gives two reasons why idolatry doesn't work. Why idolatry doesn't pay. Verses 10 through 13, the idol is not able to surpass the greatness of the one who made it. This is a really intriguing thought for why idolatry is a dud, is that idols themselves are not able to surpass the greatness of the one who made it. Verse 10, who fashions a god or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. Look, at the end of the day, an idol is a thing made by human hands, and the human hands are able to make it, and the human hands are able to destroy it. That's the heart of the problem with idolatry is that at the end of the day, the thing that made it is the thing that can kill it. Right? We, we make and invent things to make our lives better, but at the end of the day, they all break because they're not more powerful than we are. Right? Very, very, very clever men and women have designed things like refrigerators and dishwashers and uh, cars and things like that to make our lives better. But at the end of the day, dishwashers break, refrigerators break, cars break. They are not powerful enough to surpass the abilities of their designers. Right? The, the, the value of the idol is only as good as its lifespan, and its lifespan is shorter than the one who has made it. They're just not powerful enough. It's, it's really kind of presented as that contrast between the Lord as that eternally fixed rock in the midst of swirling, tumultuous times. Idolatry exists as part of the swirling, tumultuous times. It's not enduring. It's not lasting. Our idols will pass away. And this is an intriguing one because it, it really addresses the nature of our idolatry, right? We, we think about it, if we're going to be honest, a moment we will, just for a moment, before we put our armor back on and go back to hiding. But if we're honest, our, our idols that we have elevated are, I would say probably number one is the absence of pain, which is such a funny one. I, I, I love that just as a concept for an idol because realistically, are we very good at it? No. And even if you're able to run for a while, father time will catch you all if you're you know, able to live long enough. The body breaks down. The bones break down. The organs break down. Eventually, it will happen if the Lord allows you to live a long time. It will be painful. It's one of the great joys of having been a member of the Golden Oldies for so long, starting to hang out with those that were twice my age, three times my age, almost four times my age when I first started. It's to be able to see and learn that, guess what, the body breaks down. You don't stay young forever. You cannot run from the ravages of time. You can't avoid pain forever. All right, well, the absence of pain doesn't work as an idol. How about the the pursuit of pleasure? Well, anybody that's tried that for any period of time knows that doesn't work because even the pleasures themselves become less satisfying after a time. And it takes more and more and more and more, and eventually, as you chase that more and more and more and more, you feel more empty and more empty and more empty on the inside. And this is, you've heard me speak about with great regularity, one of the great evils of the social media age, one of the great evils of the pornography age, is that it's chemically ruining our minds. And I, I don't just mean the, like, it makes us think bad thoughts sorts of thing. I, I do mean that. But, no, chemically, like, biologically, it's ruining our minds. It's goofing up the dopamine hit inside your brain, right? The Lord has made you so that when you experience happy things, your body produces a chemical in your brain called dopamine, which gives you the happy fills, right? It's it's chemical, like nah. God's made us that way. What your marketing agencies have figured out is that when we swipe to refresh, it releases all of those chemicals in our mind, and so we're trained. That's why you have on your Instagram swipe to refresh. On your TikTok, you have a swipe to refresh. That's why on Twitter, you have swipe to refresh. All of them are designed to release as much dopamine as possible so that when you are bored, you go back to your happy hit. The problem is that anybody that's been perennially online for a season knows it gives less joy every time, eventually, because it's breaking our brains it's destroying our dopamine receptors. Our bodies are not designed to work in that way. And that idol doesn't work. It's interesting, really, if you see any idol that we have, it doesn't pass the first test that an idol cannot surpass the greatness of the one that made it. And going a little bit faster, the idol can't surpass the material that made it, the greatness of the material that made it you want to look at the value or the success of an idol, look at what it's composed of. And the problem is, is that all of our idols that we know of are composed of the created order, and as a result, we will pass away with the created order. They are not, as verse 8 has said, that rock from outside of time and outside of space. Our idols are those that exist within time, inside time and space, and therefore pass away with time and space. Our God is the one who is the first and the last who is the eternal rock upon which we may build. Idolatry doesn't pay. In fact, actually, uh, verse 21, that's where the Lord takes up his theme. 21, 22, 23, he is the God from outside time and space, and I love this. If you actually look at verses 21, 22, and 23, I've talked too long, so I'm gonna go quickly here. The verb tenses all don't match. Um, You have imperfect, which is not completed. You have perfect, which is completed, and they're all jumbled up. The English tries to capture it well for you, but the whole point of verses uh, 21, 22, 23 is that the Lord is, he is accomplishing uh, salvation, but because he's outside time and space, his promises and the accomplishment of those promises are both the same to him. They're both the same to him. Because he's outside of time. Now, for me, when I make promises, I, I, they're inside time, right? I can promise you right now, I'll be your pastor in 25 years. Was that true? We'll find out in 25 years. I, I, I can't make it happen. I have no idea. I can't extend my life. I don't know what my mental condition will be when I'm 70 years old. I don't know. I have no idea. If I can make that promise. I have no idea if it'll come True because I, I don't have the knowledge and I don't have the ability. I am inside time, so it's all cause and effect. I, 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 things are revealed as we go. The Lord is outside of time. So when he makes his promises and when he makes those promises come to be, it's the exact same moment. It's a bit of a heady argument, but it's a wonderful when you think about why God's promises are worth trusting. It's why promising salvation and accomplishing salvation are the same thing because he's outside of time. And then lastly, here we see in uh, verses 24 through 28, at the very end, he's the God who plans. His uh, workings inside time and space are not those that are kind of mistaken, but ones that have been planned out from before the foundation of the world. You see, friends, here's the reality. The world in which we live is chaotic and tumultuous, and realistically, I don't think it's ever going to get any less so. Uh, I said this 20 years ago. I still actually hold to it that I think, I think we're looking at the largest generation gap in human history since Noah's kids and Noah's grandkids. Right? Noah's kids knew what his life was like before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. His grandkids only knew life after the flood. That is weird to think about, isn't it? That when his grandkids started growing up, there were only eight people on the planet. They, number nine was the first grandkid. But their parents remembered what was probably a population of two billion. That's weird to think about. I think we're looking at the next biggest generation gap because, honestly, of the arrival of the internet and technology. The craziness is not going to get any less. And as a result, it is going to be increasingly important that we train ourselves that we train our children and that we train each other that the only thing that is truly true is the Word of God, especially the promises of God. Really, that is the heart of the Christian message. Why is it that we're able to talk about Jesus as our Redeemer? Because God has promised that He is. And why do we offer forgiveness for sins? Because God has promised that He does. And why do I know that when I die, I will pass from this life into the very presence of God? Because God has told me it's true. And how do I know I'm going to win in the end? Because God has promised. And how do I know He's never going to leave me and He's never going to forsake me? Because God has promised. And how do I know I can bear up under trial and and tribulation? Because God has promised He'll be with me the whole way. And how do I know we'll make it together? Because God has promised. Everyone lies. But our God does not. And His promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray in His name. Oh God, we thank You for Christ. We thank You that Your promises are trustworthy and true in Him. May we find peace in Christ. Amen.